Good morning, men. It's great to see you. Glad you're here. Today we're talking about forgiveness. And the first person we need to forgive is uh, Sandy Wilson for being gone and putting me up here. So let's pause, have a moment of silent prayer, and you all forgive Sandy. And then you can pray to forgive me when we're done today. I'm thrilled to be here. I normally sit back there at... Uh, Table number 56 with uh, Art and Paul and Charlie and Charles. and I sit by uh, garbage can number two. <laughs> I like being over there because so many of you throw away so much food, and I hate to see it go to waste. And uh, I like to be over there by that. It's a privilege to be with you today and talk about another great sermon from Matthew 18. Sandy's been talking about the messages from this chapter how if we are going to follow Christ, we need to be concerned about our character and his kingdom and his church. And the church is to be a holy community and it has a holy purpose. And sometimes it takes us a long time to realize that we're about something special and holy and different when we're a part of an evangelical church. And we have to learn how to relate to others effectively. And this entire chapter has been talking about how we're supposed to relate in the kingdom of God. How do we relate to one another in the community we call the church? And it's so different from how we live in the world. It's foreign to us. And it takes quite a while to adjust and adapt to this lifestyle that Christ is calling us to. In fact, living a Christ-like life in community is humanly impossible and requires the power of God to accomplish Just as we cannot save ourselves, only the power of God can save us. In the same way, we cannot live this life ourselves. Only the power of God through the Holy Spirit can enable us to live the kind of life that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. It takes his Holy Spirit power working in us for us to begin to live this life he's called us to live. When Sandy looked at verses 1 through 6, he talked about humility a reconciled life and how we are to humble ourselves. He's talked about how we seek human greatness, but Christ teaches human weakness. His orientation is teaching is so different from what the rest of us live. And we must become childlike in our faith and in our relationships with him. And he gives us three reasons for humility from this lesson we had in the first six verses. We are creatures. We are sinful creatures. And we are redeemed sinful creatures. And as Sandy so eloquently put it when he taught this, we are dirt, we are lousy dirt, and we are redeemed lousy dirt. I don't know how he gets away with this kind of stuff on Thursday mornings, but he does it all the time. He is so blunt and direct, and you kind of wonder, my goodness, that's true. It's true. We are lousy dirt, but thank God we are redeemed lousy dirt. So it's encouraging to know that God loves us anyway. And he talked about in verses 7 through 9 how we are to handle our sin. We are responsible for how our behavior affects other people. We don't live as islands. We're connected. We're interrelated. And we're responsible for how our our behavior affects others. And he talked about the danger of falling into temptation and how that's so dangerous that it ought to be avoided at all costs and how our obedience demands self-discipline. I really shouldn't eat that many muffins whenever we have those chocolate muffins. You know, I really shouldn't eat all of those grits and eggs and, and sausage that are so abundantly provided when we have that the first uh, Thursday of the month. But I fight against that. We war, we war against ourselves most of the time, and we need self-discipline in our lives. And he offered eight steps toward defeating temptation. 
and talked about how self-discipline brings great joy into our lives. And then last week we talked about accountability, how we're to help our brother in the faith and how that affects our relationships, how we must go after and pursue wandering brothers, those that are wandering away from the path, wandering away from God. We ought to go after them. We must confront our erring brothers, those that are in sin or involved in activities that diminish their relationship with the Lord and with others. And he outlined a biblical process for pursuing and restoring these erring brothers, a direct, private, personal approach to help redeem these brothers. And then he talked about how we must censure contumacious brothers. And uh, coming from a Southern Baptist background, I've been Southern Baptist most of my life, I don't know what that word means, so I had to look it up. And it means stubbornly perverse or rebellious, willfully and obstinately disobedient. Those are the kind of brothers that need to be censured. Those that continue stubbornly to rebel and willfully disobey. Like I said, it takes the power of God to help us live this life. It's not something we can do in our own strength. And so day by day, we're seeking and asking the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this otherworldly kind of life that's not natural. It's not a human kind of a life. It's a supernatural kind of a life that transforms a human life. And so we have power through Christ to live this life, as we see in Galatians 2. Because we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer we, us, who live, but Christ who lives in us. In the life we live now in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. Because Christ died for us, his Holy Spirit lives in us and enables us, empowers us to live the supernatural life that Christ commands us to live. Another great passage from Philippians. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. We think we can't do this, we can't accomplish that. This is beyond us. There's no way I'll ever be able to accomplish that. But Christ gives us a supernatural power and strengthens us to do it. And also from Philippians 2, it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Not only is the Holy Spirit working through us to accomplish unbelievable things, he is giving us the will to do it. We don't want to do it. But his Spirit gives us the desire to do it. Gives us the desire which is so important, not only in living a godly life, but in forgiving other people. Because we're going to see in a moment how sometimes we don't want to forgive. We really do not want to forgive. But God gives us the desire to forgive. So we're going to talk about helping your brother today in Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And I selected these two guys as our poster children for this lesson. Uh, The Hatfields and the McCoys are a great poster child for our study on forgiveness. You may have seen this mini-series that was on TV a few months ago. Uh, with Kevin Costner and uh, Bob Paxton. This feud that took place in the United States back in the late uh, 1800s, spilled over in two or three different states, went on for generations. So many people in the Hatfield family and the McCoy family killing each other in this blood feud. Not wanting to forgive, not wanting to forget. How many people can die when there is no forgiveness? How many people and lives get ruined because they cannot forgive? And also from this movie that your wife may have drugged you to a few months ago called Les Miserables. You may have seen that. It's been out in several different versions. But it's a great story about forgiveness. It takes place in France. 
Everybody's miserable. That's why they call it Les Miserables. It's raining all the time. People are crying and hurting, and they're rebelling against the country. And there's this guy named Jean Valjean who's been a prisoner for stealing a loaf of bread when he was hungry. He's finally released, but he's so bitter and angry for all that he's had to suffer that he's just out for vengeance. And he goes to this priest and steals these uh, candlesticks and other silverware, and he runs away, and he's caught, and he's brought back to the priest. But the priest miraculously forgives him for his theft and challenges him to express that kind of forgiveness and to live for the Lord in his life. And so Jean Valjean's life is transformed. He becomes a forgiving man. But this Javert, this police officer for the French government, is out to get Jean Valjean. He's always lived for justice, enforced the law, and brought people to justice. And throughout the movie, he's trying to bring Jean Valjean in to arrest him, to condemn him, to throw him back into prison. But throughout the, the story, Javert falls under the power either of uh, Jean Valjean or his associates. And his life is threatened many times, but Jean Valjean always forgives him and allows him to escape. And this presents such a tremendous angst within Javert because his whole life has been built on justice, bringing people to justice. And here is somebody that he's been trying to erase who keeps showing him mercy and keeps showing him pity. And he doesn't know what to do with that. He cannot handle it. And finally, it brings him to his ruin by the end of the movie. He cannot comprehend and understand that kind of a grace. So this is a movie about forgiveness and about grace. But there's a lot of singing, and uh, after three hours, everybody's pretty miserable. And, <laughs> and I told my wife that if I really wanted to be that miserable, I could just stay home and work on my income taxes. But it is good. It's a great movie. Let's look at Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you for your love and what you teach us about forgiveness. Father, you are the great master forgiver, and we cannot comprehend how you could forgive us of our many sins and make it possible for us to know you. And yet that's exactly what you do. And so today, Father, we pray that you will not only open our eyes to your word and the truths you want us to know, but that you'll put your finger on things in our lives that we need to let go of. You'll put your finger on relationships and bitterness and rage and other unresolved things. Help us to bring them up to you and to begin the process of forgiving just as you have forgiven us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The King James Version says 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, 
he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, some versions say torturers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. One of the first things we see in this passage is that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. From Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, we read this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We think we know something about God's love. We think we know something about His mercy and about His justice. We think we know something about these subjects, but we really have no full, full understanding of how God loves us. We have no full understanding of his justice because he brings about justice in ways that are different than the ways we seek justice. And he brings about his mercy in ways that we don't understand sometimes and how we cannot comprehend. His ways are far and above different from our ways. He shows greater mercy than we do, sometimes more severe justice than we would think, and yet love we cannot comprehend. I have a hard time comprehending 1 Corinthians 13, how we could possibly love in a way in which we never remember or record another person's wrongs against us, as it says. God's ways are not our ways. And what we see here in verse 21 is that our standards for living seem commendable to us. Peter, uh, Peter comes up to Christ and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. See, Peter's being very generous in offering to forgive somebody seven times. The scribes and Pharisees taught that you had to forgive at least three times. You should forgive people three times. That's fine. But after the third time, you don't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter's being gracious and trying to pick a number like seven. Should I forgive seven times? And his standards seem, seem commendable to him. And sometimes our standards for living and how we relate to people seem fine to us. They seem reasonable they seem what they fit into our society and what we would be a part of, but they're really not commendable to the Lord. Our standards seem commendable to us, but are they to the Lord? God's standard of kingdom living seems impossible to us. Jesus responds to this fairly liberal offer to forgive seven times with this, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or as the King James Version says, 70 times 7, which many of you who are math whizzes would know is 490 times. And it's so many times, you can't keep track of 490 times forgiving everybody. So what, in effect, Jesus is saying is that there's no limit to the amount of times you should forgive somebody. And there's no use in trying to keep track of it. There's no use in keeping a little note pad that says, okay, I've forgiven you... 35 times now, and I've got a few more hundred to go. It's so many, it's no use keeping track of it. 
what Christ is saying is we don't have a limit to the times we are called to forgive people. It's impossible to live this way. It's impossible to live this way without Jesus' help in our lives. Another great thing we see here in verse 23 is that one day Jesus Christ is going to hold everyone accountable. We have this parable that Jesus presents about forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. There are other stories that Jesus tells in the New Testament, and they all have a time of reckoning. This master plants a vineyard. He enlists people to take care of it. He lets them grow the produce and and produce wine. But then he sends his servants to come back and to collect what is owed him. There's another story, too, where this master entrusts money to his servants, different amounts of money. And he goes away, but he comes back, and there's an accounting. He expects an accounting. There is a reckoning coming for all of us. There is a judgment to which we all must attend. We read about it in Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats, whether we are followers of Christ or not, we all stand before that judgment and are going to be held accountable for many things. We're going to be held accountable for our words, as we read about in Matthew 12. I'll tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We're accountable for what we say. And we're probably going to hear about that at that time of judgment, what we've said in our lifetimes. And there's another sobering word about this judgment that we all face from Romans 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Are you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Sometimes we think that because we know the Lord, our future is secure. And we are. We cannot fall from that grace. He holds us in his hands. But we are still accountable for how we live, how we apply his word, how we practice what Christ has taught us to live and to do. And we will be held accountable for that when we stand before Jesus Christ one day and answer to our lives. So it's important to remember that we are facing a time of judgment. And this parable is another illustration of this opportunity to stand before the king. We see in verse 24 how huge our debt is. Our debt, our sin is huge. We can never repay it. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So what did this servant owe who owed 10,000 talents? How much is 10,000 talents in our uh, monetary forms today? There are two to three different ways you can add this up. One is that a talent is worth, one talent is worth 20 years' wages. Think of how much money you have made in 20 years or what you might make in 20 years. Multiply that by 10,000, and you have the idea of what this man owed. Another, another way to look at a talent is also a unit of weight equal to 75 or 80 pounds. So if you have 10,000 talents, that's 750,000 to 800,000 pounds of silver or gold. Roughly, if we're talking about silver, it might be worth $384 million. Gold is worth a lot more. So it's a bunch of money. Who is this guy? 
You know, was, was he manager of several Walmarts in that area? How did he accumulate such a debt? $384 million. Unbelievable. It's a huge debt. He could not repay that. Impossible to repay. And yet we stop and think about our sin and our lives and all that the Lord has forgiven us. That is an impossible debt to pay back. There's no way we could ever pay back the Lord for forgiving us of all that we're guilty of and have done against him during our lifetimes. It is absolutely impossible to pay that back. It is beyond reckoning. So Jesus uses this humongous amount of money to illustrate the tremendous debt that each one of us has to the Lord for our sin and how it is impossible for us to pay that back. And there's another truth here in verses 25 and 26. A huge debt requires a severe penalty. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and for the payment to be made. Now, they could do that. They could throw all of his family and everybody in jail and all that he had, but that's not going to begin to pay that debt back. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's no way he could pay back everything. And yet in this pitiful, pitiful voice, he's trying to ask his master to let him pay back everything. He can't do it. It's beyond him, but he's making this appeal anyway. Our debt is so severe. Our debt is so large. The penalty is severe. Romans 5 and Hebrews, 11, Hebrews 9 talk about that great penalty and what it costs to pay that back. We read about this in Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A humongous, great penalty for our sin. God sent his only son to die for our sin. A severe penalty for our sin that has been paid a debt that we could never pay back. And yet, we read this amazing verse, verse 27, 18 words. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That's about $21 million a word. And so briefly and eloquently stated that this master had pity for him and released him from the debt and forgave him that debt. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? Why would God choose you, amongst all the people in the world, to bring and offer salvation to you and to forgive your debt? So many people have never heard the gospel message, but he chose you to hear it. And he chose you to save and to sanctify through the power of his Holy Spirit. And he gave you faith to believe in him. And faith to follow him and, and serve him. Why did he do that? What kind of compassion and mercy and grace comes from this God we love and serve? It's incomprehensible. It's beyond our understanding, beyond our ability to fathom. But one thing is true, one thing is sure, is that God wants us to be free. He wants us to be free that we might serve him and we might free other people. 
We may not be able to comprehend all of why he loves us so much, why he has such tremendous compassion. But one thing we can be assured of is that he wants us to be free. He sets us free that we might free others and might be available to serve him and be available to minister in his name. He wants us to be free. Another truth we see here in verses 28 through 29 is that the debts and wounds that others inflict on us can appear horrible to us, but they pale in comparison to all that God has forgiven us. You notice when the master brought in this servant, the servant appealed to him and said, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. But then this servant who's forgiven this $384 million debt goes out and finds a man who owes him 100 denarii, and that man uses the very same words that this other servant used. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. The debts that other people accumulate to us, the offenses and the, and the things they do to violate us and hurt us, are indeed horrible. Many of you have endured much greater losses and insults and uh, affronts than I have. But the longer you've been around, the more offenses and debts uh, you've experienced in your life. And the more difficult it becomes sometimes when they pile up to forgive them and to move on. Sometimes they can stick to you like uh, Velcro and they follow us around. And those appeal, appear horrible and unforgivable to us. But when they're compared to the debts that God has forgiven us, they're really pale in comparison. How much is 100 denarii? A denarius is really one day's wage. If you put that into a minimum wage and work about 10 hours a day, it's around $72.50 a day. And 100 denarii would be about $7,250. And so what you have here is a servant who owed $384 million, unwilling to forgive somebody who owed him over 7200 It seems laughable. But it's no less laughable than the issues that we forgive, we refuse to forgive in our lives. The things that happen to us, that have been done to us, we refuse to let go of. Yet if we could only stop for a moment and remember all that the Lord has done to forgive us and how he's pardoned us on so many occasions from some of the most atrocious things we've said or done, if we could only stop and remember that amazing grace, then perhaps that 7250 bucks would not be that important to us. But it's so easy to forget that $384 million. It's so easy to forget that great debt that we have been forgiven by the Lord. Verses, verse 30 reminds us that forgive, refusing to forgive others indicates that we do not value God's grace. Or even worse that we do not know him at all. This servant refused to forgive this man, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. In prison, you really can't pay much of a debt. You're tortured most of the time, and you try to appeal to your family and friends and others that may come to visit you to try to bring in money to help bail me out of prison, but you're going to be there most of your life, if not all of your life. And this servant refused to forgive him and threw him into prison. He had forgotten about or didn't realize or didn't understand God's grace in his life. How could he forget? How could he forget so great a forgiveness and throw another person into jail? 
It's true sometimes that people that think they belong to the Lord, think they are His, they call themselves Christians, really do not belong to the Lord. We see this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Doing God's will is a sign that you really belong to Him. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life and lives in your life, it's a sign that, he's, that you're His. You belong to Him. And that Spirit causes you to want to follow Him and to obey Him. But when there's no obedience, that's a sign that His Holy Spirit is not in your life, that you don't really belong to Him. Jesus says this again in John 14. Let me back up to that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We obey him, we obey him, we love him, we'll keep what he calls us to do. But if we don't obey him, if we don't do his word, it may be a sure sign that we don't belong to him at all, which is a sobering thing to see. I think that's what happened in this parable. As you know, in parables, it's, it's not, they're not designed as allegories where everything means one thing. There's usually one or two truths that Jesus is presenting in his parable. And he's not presenting a parable here about a man who's forgiven who falls from grace. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is we have been forgiven so much that we too should forgive. What I think this story illustrates is that this man was truly not a follower. He didn't really truly know and appreciate God's grace. And the penalty for refusing to forgive others is severe in verses 31 to 35. When these fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is such a crucial teaching in Christ's ministry in the New Testament. We see this so simply carried out in the Lord's Prayer. And here at our church, the Second Prayer, we pray this prayer every Sunday. We say these words every Sunday. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How do we expect God to forgive us our debts if we cannot forgive others? And yet when we pray this prayer, we are making a promise that we will forgive. We're making a promise that we will forgive because we know there's a relationship between God forgiving us and our forgiving others. And this truth is so important. After, after Christ gave us the words to the prayer, he followed it up just a few verses later and emphasized it again in verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's hard to be any clearer than that, isn't it? Jesus emphasized how important that truth is. You must forgive others if you want the Lord to forgive you. What I think can happen in our lives, men, as we seek to live for the Lord, we may truly know him and love him, and we work diligently at trying to forgive other people, but there are times when we may not want to forgive. The pain may be so deep and the hurt so horrible that we don't want to forgive. And during those times when we're living with this refusal to forgive, 
Things are accumulating between us and God. Things are pushing out our relationship with the Lord. He begins to seem more and more distant to us. And he seems further and further away from us. And we wonder, why is he seem so far away? Why don't, why don't my prayers ever seem to go above the ceiling? Why is my spiritual life so dried up? Why are things working out so poorly? And why do I have no desire to go to church? Why do I have no desire to be around Christian people? Why, why are things falling apart in my life? We need to go back and look. Is there a place in our lives where we are refusing to forgive? Are there unresolved issues with people that we have allowed to accumulate? And God is not drawing near to us because we are not obeying his word. There's so much that can stack up and make God seem so far away. And the responsibility is in us. It's in our hearts and how we've addressed and dealt with the issues that have hurt us and drawn us away. So what happens to this man who refuses to forgive? He is locked up. He is imprisoned. And that is what happens when you forget or fail to forgive. You get locked into a prison. And it's almost impossible to get out. Forgiving is such a difficult thing to do. God's word challenges us to do this. And we've seen such a great parable about how this takes place. But forgiving is really an art. It's a challenge. And it's something we work at throughout our lives. And so I wanted to share a few thoughts from this book by Lewis Smedes on the art of forgiving. When you need to forgive and don't know how. Because sometimes the pains are so deep that we don't know how to forgive. And we need some help and encouragement. And sometimes we misunderstand what forgiveness is all about. So let me just share a few quotations and thoughts from this book. And uh, maybe that might be an encouragement to you. And you can maybe get this book and, and read some and find some other uh, help from it. It's helped me a great deal because we've all have some wounds we carry with us through life. Here's a great statement that um, I like. Hate is the most self-righteous of all emotions. We feel deliriously righteous when we hate the evil creature who viciously assaulted us. We love our hate. Here's this little cute little kitten up here we love. We love our hate. We coddle it, feed it, stroke it, and above all justify it. But let it settle in for a while take over the best room in our souls, and it becomes a disagreeable guest who will not leave when the party is over. That's how it starts. At that first offense, man, we get this great, warm, hot feeling of delirious hate toward that person. And we start to contemplate how are we going to seek our vengeance. We nurture our hate. We feed on it. It settles in. It's kept me awake at night. Thinking about how I'm going to get back at somebody. Lost sleep over thinking about how I'm going to get back at them. It grows in us. And slowly, day by day, it begins to consume us. And as it consumes us, it begins to control us. And it steals from us. It robs us of valuable moments and emotions. And it poisons our life and imprisons us. And it becomes our controller. For a while, we were coddling it and nurturing it and loving to have that sense of vengeance and plotting it out. But long enough in our hearts and our lives, it takes over and takes control of us. It's kind of like this guy here. Forgiving is letting go of bitterness, but how do you get rid of something that has a grip on you? 
This is how often I've, sometimes I've felt about it. I surely would like to forgive that person. I'd like to forgive that guy. And I would if I could, but this has a grip on me. How do I get this grip off of me? It's not just a matter of me wanting to forgive. It has a grip on me. How do I get the grip off of me? How do you let go of something that won't let go of you? Here's a great statement about hate. Because of the kind of pain that hate is, we must heal that pain before we can do anything else good or do anyone else any good. Forgiving begins to heal the pain of a wounded past. Hate is more than a pain, as Smeeds writes. It is a dangerous form of anger that leads to murder. Matthew 5, 21 through 22 talks about how when we're angry with a brother, we're liable for judgment. Hate is the beginning point of murder. And we can murder many people in our hearts and sin against God without taking any action against that person. Hate is that kind of a pain and that kind of an anger that's dangerous and must be healed. And yet we're grateful that God is the original master forgiver. Every time we grope our reluctant way through the miracle of forgiving, we are imitating his style. We are following in the footsteps of our God who is a master forgiver. And why does he do that? He loves us incomprehensibly and he wants us to be free. And he wants us to free others. And he wants us to be available to him. You know, minor offenses. We're not talking about minor offenses that people inflict on us almost daily. Minor offenses can be overlooked and forgotten. Forgiving is for the wounds that stab at our souls, for wrongs that we cannot put up with ever from anybody. Forgiving is about healing wounds. Sometimes it's much easier to forgive people who have hurt us than to forgive people who have hurt our kids. I mean, you mess with me, that's okay, I can deal with that. But you mess with my kids, man, we're in for a battle. And we have a different standard for those we love. And it's much, much harder to forgive those who have hurt somebody we love and wounded our kids. Smeets talks about three stages of forgiving. Number one is that as we go through the process of forgiving, we rediscover the humanity of the person who hurt us. As we go through forgiving, we have to remember their humanity, that they are a person. And we surrender our right to get even is the next stage. And then we revise our feelings toward the person we forgive. But being, but being a, a godly minister, I have several other steps in this process that I want to share with you about how I work through forgiveness. They're not indicated here, but this is my uh, godly approach that I've been taking for years through forgiving people. Number one, I see myself in this air-conditioned golf cart driving through hell. And everybody that's, that I'm mad at and have an issue with is burning and to being tortured in hell. And I'm driving through in this air-conditioned golf cart enjoying their screams and their torment and justice. And then, as things get better, I don't have to have the golf cart. I can just listen to them scream and I'll, be, I'll feel much better then. I don't have to go by and see it, God. I just want to make sure I can hear them screaming and in torment. And then as my feelings begin to heal somewhat, I don't have to hear them screaming. I just need to know that they're being tortured and they're okay and God's taking care of them and bringing them to justice. And then after a while, I began to realize, you know, this is, this, this is really not worth that. These folks are not worth my losing sleep over and being tormented. It's not worth all that. 
And then more time passes, and God gives me the desire to want to forgive them. I didn't have it at first. I didn't come to that desire at first. I had to go through the golf cart. Then I had to deal with the sound of their screams. Then I had to say, well, okay, I don't have to hear them screaming in hell. And then I had to realize that it's not worth it. And then God gave me the desire to go ahead and let go and forgive. So those are my ministerial prerequisites to the process of forgiving. I hope yours are not as vicious as mine are. But those are the ways sometimes that I want to treat people who have hurt me or wounded me and hurt my family. It's a difficult process. Many people who say that they cannot forgive a person who wronged them are handicapped by a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. We hear a lot of uh, words and, and um, idioms about what forgiveness is, and sometimes that creates a misunderstanding and keeps us or handicaps us from forgiving other people. So let's talk about what forgiving does not mean. Forgiving does not mean that we tolerate the wrong done to us. Peter's question about how, long do, how often do I need to forgive somebody, seven times, he's really asking how long do I need to tolerate somebody, put up with somebody. Should I tolerate them seven times? And Jesus' answer is about forgiveness without any limits. It's not about toleration. No, you don't tolerate this seven times. You forgive it. You let go of it. You forgive them. Forgiving is not about tolerating wrong that's done to you. Forgiving is not about wanting to or having to forget what happened. You don't have to forget. You may not be able to forget, but you can forgive. You can forgive. And forgiving does not mean that we excuse the person who did it, nor that we surrender our right to justice. Excusing just says, well, you're not responsible. You know, you're not accountable for that. Forgiving is not about excusing somebody, and it's not about surrendering our right to justice. Many times on our local news here, I've seen people down at the courthouse, uh, people, who have, people, people of faith who've lost a loved one, who's been shot or murdered by somebody in the courtroom, and the mother or the wife, you know they're a person of faith because they say, you know, I've forgiven this person. I cannot comprehend that level of forgiveness sometimes. But they have forgiven that person who took their loved one, but there's still a need for justice. Even though a person has been forgiven, there's still the need for justice. And we don't have to give up on the justice because we have forgiven them. And forgiving somebody does not mean that we invite them who hurt us to hurt us again. That's not what forgiveness is about. We can forgive somebody, but we're not inviting them back to hurt us again. Another truth we need to remember sometimes is that forgiving is not always about reunion. Reunion is that, well, we all get back together like we were before, and we all have the same relationship like we had before, and everything was like it was before. That's what reunion is about. But it's not always about reunion. For reunion to be possible, the person wounded needs to forgive the offender, and the offender must show true repentance and, if need be, make restitution. For instance, you know, if you steal a, a pencil for me or a pen for me, and, uh, you know, I can forgive you, but our relationship's not going to be the same unless you give the pencil back. You know, you can get, just give it back. Make some restitution. I can forgive you for stealing something, but sometimes if the relationship is going to be restored, it takes both parties to restore it. The person who has done the offense may need to make restitution or show true repentance. 
but we can still forgive. It takes one person to forgive. It takes two to be reunited. Forgiveness is something we do individually, but it takes two people to be reunited. Forgiving happens inside the wounded person. Reunion happens in a relationship between people. And a person can truly forgive and refuse to be reunited. A wife can agree to forgive and truly forgive her husband for abusing her and beating her and abusing and beating the kids and still refuse to be reunited. Just because you've forgiven does not mean you have to be reunited in every situation. Reunion may be possible, but it may not be possible in some situations. We can forgive even if we do not trust the person who wronged us not to wrong us again. Our trust relationship may be changed forever, but we can still forgive. We can still forgive. Reunion is sometimes impossible, but forgiveness is always possible. And forgiving does not always mean restoration. Forgiving does not always mean restoration. A company may forgive you for stealing $150,000 from their treasury. A priest may be forgiven for sexually abusing the young children in the church. And the church may forgive that minister. But it does not always mean that they're going to be restored to their job or have that job available for them again. So forgiving does not always mean restoration. Sometimes there are consequences that need to be paid, and and there are reasons why people cannot be restored. But forgiveness is possible. Sometimes, perhaps many times, we need an inner push to forgive. We need for God to give us the desire to forgive, especially if we do not want to forgive or know how to start forgiving. This has been my situation throughout my life when there was a deep, painful wound that would not go away. It was like that dog clamped onto the guy's leg. How do I get rid of this? How do I get, I don't want, sometimes I don't want to get rid of it. I, hate, I cannot understand how to, and, but I need for God to open the door to help me begin to forgive. Because what he's asking me to do is not natural. It's supernatural. And we need his Holy Spirit to give us that push, that desire to forgive people. If you find yourself locked in a situation where you don't know how in the world could I ever forgive this person for what he's done to me, I don't know how to do it. I don't even desire to do it. Ask God to give you the desire. Because the scripture said the Lord is working in us both to will and to work according to what he's calling us to do. He will give you the desire. It may not come right then, but keep praying for it. Ask him to give you that desire. Pray for it. And eventually he'll begin to create in you a desire, that extra push to begin to forgive that person. We need God's help to forgive because these are deep, deep wounds that will not let go easily. Our motivation to forgive may be God-centered. In other words, we may forgive because he commands it or it may be self-centered. I want to be freed from a painful past. We cannot do any good for the person who wounded us until we have done good for ourselves by forgiving. Obeying God's command to forgive is not only in the best interest of our brother, but also in our best interest. God wants us to forgive our brother and free him from that debt, but he also wants us to be free. 
And that's why he commands us to forgive. He wants us to have a future. There is no future in the prison. There is no future in the prison. God wants us to be free, and he wants us to have a future. <clears throat> what about this question we sometimes deal with? Should we forgive people who do not ask for our forgiveness or who will not even recognize that they've done anything wrong? Should we forgive those people? Should we wait on them to ask for forgiveness? I like this statement from Smead's book. Forgiving is something good we do for ourselves. We should not have to wait for permission from the person who did something bad to us. The person who hurt us should not control whether or when we recover from the pain he brought us. So we should not be waiting on somebody to come to us and ask for us to forgive them. The question is, when do you want to be free of it? When do you want to let go of it? Don't let that person who hurts you control when you're free from it and control when you forgive. Go ahead when you're able and God has empowered you and you're ready, forgive that person. You don't have to wait for that person to come to you and ask for forgiveness. And here's something that's been true in my life many times. Forgiving is seldom done once and for all. It almost always needs repeating. We can truly forgive somebody who has hurt us. It may take a long time, but, but to, to the Lord's credit and his power, he leads us to the point where we're truly able to forgive. And we go on for a long time, maybe months or years, and all of a sudden we connect with that memory or that place or that incident again, and all those feelings, the anger and the heat and the rage begins to well up in us again. And we find ourselves right back at this same place. And we need again to go back and forgive again. Even though we've already forgiven, we need to go back and forgive again. So sometimes we need to repeat forgiveness in some situations because the devil would love to bring that back up and stir us up and control us and imprison us. But we need to go back and again forgive. Forgiving serious wounds takes time and prayer, but be careful not to take too long or rage and bitterness will take root in the soul. We're really on the clock when something happens to us. We're coddling this little furry animal of hate that we love to have and nurse and think about how we're going to seek revenge, but we're on the clock. And the longer we coddle that feeling of rage and bitterness, as long as we contemplate how we're going to get back, as long as we picture ourselves driving through hell in this air-conditioned golf cart, we're risking that hate taking possession of us and controlling us. And we should not keep it too long or the rage and bitterness will take us over and we'll become slaves to it. It does take time to forgive. But be careful because the longer it takes, the more easily rage and bitterness can set in. And then when we forgive, we set our prisoner free and discover that the prisoner is us. This man in this parable ends up in jail. He's put himself in jail by refusing to forgive. And he's locked up. He can't go anywhere. His life is locked into this tiny, small room. And he's a prisoner for the rest of his life. And he has put himself there. 
And when we refuse to forgive, when we allow something to accumulate in our lives over time, multiple issues to come up, whether it's with our spouse, our children, a former business partner, an old friend, sometimes the deepest wounds come from the people who are closest to us, with whom we have the closest relationships. And as we allow those things to accumulate, they imprison us. And it's surprising how we become unavailable when we're in prison. We may have a daughter or son who's being married, and hate consumes us. And we're not available for that event. Oh, we're there. We were present. But we were emotionally unavailable. And we don't remember hardly anything about that wedding. Our children wants us to take, us, take them to the zoo. And there's some issues that are just foaming and churning in our hearts. And we were there at the zoo, but we're not available to our family. We're locked in a prison. And so much of life can be lost and missed out on and forgotten when we're in a prison and we're unavailable for those we love. God forgave us and he set us free and he wants us to be free. And when we forgive, we walk in stride with our forgiving God. So he calls us to remember all that I have forgiven you. How graciously and mysteriously and abundantly I have forgiven you. Remember that. Bask in it. Be free in that. And let go and forgive others who hurt you and offend you. Let go. Set yourself free. Be available for the future that I have planned for you and want you to have. And free up those who have offended you. Set them free so they can discover my grace and my love as well. Man, he wants us to be free. Your family needs a free dad, a free husband. The world needs godly Christian men who are free to serve him. Do not allow yourself to go to prison over things that can be forgiven. Through God's grace, let's let go. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We cannot begin to express our gratitude for what you've done for us. Your amazing grace is beyond belief. And we're so thankful for that today. Father, help us day by day not to forget how amazing it is and how much you have forgiven. Lord, help each one of us today. We all have issues. We all have people in our hearts that we're struggling to forgive. Give us the desire to forgive. Give us the desire to let go. Give us the desire to put them in your hands. And Father, free us up. Free us up that we might live for you and love you and love others and be a part of what you want to do through our lives. Thank you for loving us that much. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen.